Hello, and welcome to this special episode of The Recalling. Before we go any further, I just wanted to apologize for my voice in the following recording. Unfortunately, I was recovering from a bit of poisoning. You know how that can be damaging to the throat. In any event, I hope you enjoy, and happy holidays. This is Hanson Oaks, the recording. Hello, my name is Hanson Oak, and I want to tell you my story. As I've said many times, I am fascinated by the past, the origin of things, how all the pieces of what was have come together to form what is. Many people never question why we do the things we do, only following tradition because it's what's expected in family and society, and to ask why can sometimes be seen as disobedience rather than curiosity. Many times it's because the answer is simply, I don't know, and people don't want to say that. As I did recently with Halloween, I wanted to go back to my library and ask why, to dig a little deeper and go a little further, and shed some light on the darkness that is the past of Christmas. Few celebrations are as borrowed and fragmented as Christmas, borrowing heavily from the pagans, the druids, the Romans, among countless others, from the Germanic to the Norwegian, in the end creating a celebration that really represents us all in many ways. And as beautiful a time as it is, there can be no turning away from some of our terrible past that is peppered in it. One deliciously horrifying component of what has become a part of the tradition around the world comes from just such a place. However, I don't want to tell you the tale as much as I'd like to read it to you. First-hand accounts hit harder than third-hand recallings, and so, from the depths of my collection, I present to you the journey of Hatterick Pilk, circa 600 CE. Now, Hatterick was a blacksmith, or at least that was one of his professions. He speaks of working beside the fire and forge and taming iron to his will and to his vision. He also speaks of losing his wife to childbirth and finding resentment for the daughter who killed her when she made her way into the world. He was a man who battled depression and tried his best to find the light in the world, but as you'll see from this section in one of his journals, the light never truly shined on Hatteras, and in the few times that it did, it was quick to abandon him. One night in the beginning of winter, when Hatteras was spreading the coals of his forge to cool, he saw a shadow in his doorway. It was so dark that it seemed light avoided the figure altogether, leaving it inky and surreal. In his words, he described it as, quote, lacking all definition of a living thing. It was the concentration of night with two dimly lit stars where I should be. When it arrived, the coals went cold, and I can feel the winter gathering within the walls of my small shop. I will not deny I looked to see where my hammer was, afraid for my life as I'd ever been. He noted that the shadow did not enter the shop and seemed unaffected by the world around it. For example, Hatteras described the evening as, quote, dreadfully windy, but said the shadow was, quote, unmoved by the breath of air swirling about, as a boulder in a storm is still, even as the grasses around it are lashed. In the time it took for him to blink, all that changed. The shadow was gone, and where it lurked, a woman now stood. Hatteras described her as, quote, young, but not beautiful in a way that even youth can be. Yet she was not unattractive either. In fact, I felt her presence was unremarkable, forgettable, 
Yet I could not look away from her black eyes. I could see the darkness of the shadow that once stood there had retreated into them or was wearing her as a child draws a mask and hides behind it from the world. To my mind this makes sense and it makes me believe that the figure changed only to Hatteras's eyes. As you'll soon see, the creature in question is one who depends on manipulation to survive. The woman asked Hatteras for his skills to create something for her and those in her village. She produced a drawing, a rough sketch, an idea for him to make real. It was a long iron bar with several hooks that bolted to the top of the hearth. It was what was on those hooks that troubled him, however. As he described it, quote, the hooks would hold cages that would dangle in front of the open mouth of the hearth. They were connected with lengths of chain that could raise and lower them. When I asked what the purpose of the cages were, as most roasts were cooked on spits over the fire or put simmering beside it, I was told she was not paying for my curiosity, only my skill. Hatteras's questions and concern were dulled by her proposed compensation, which she offered as, quote, as much silver and gold as you can carry in your arms. So Hatteras got to work the moment she left. As he did, the nagging doubt of the woman's intentions must have poked at him because he kept writing down the thoughts. I've never heard of this village she claims to be from. The only thing out there, as far as I know, is wilderness and beasts and witches who summon them. And quote, she did not ask for delivery of these monstrosities, nor did I think to offer it. My role in this ends at the forge and not her doorstep. When the day came that he finished, the woman showed up once more, and he did not call her. Her companion was another blowing wind and frigid air and darkness beyond comprehension. While she did not ask him to, he, quote, felt compelled to go out and gather every horse strong enough to drag my work out of the village, through the forest, and to where she claimed to hail from. So I did, taking without asking the owner, stealing rope and chain from anywhere I can find it. I kept telling myself to stop, that this was not my own will at work, but I could not. Before long, I found myself leading a pack of animals bound to these iron mantles into the woods. When he arrived at the village, he got straight to work, pulling and pushing the heavy pieces into the various homes of the villagers, all of which were, quote, made of shadow and mischief, but I did not question what I was doing any more than with a passing thought. When morning came, the village was quiet, looking abandoned and still. He described the scene as, quote, all the fires that burned in the hearths and community places were gone and cold as if they'd never burned in years. The homes were empty. The spirits of this place abandoned it in the light, and the only living creatures aside from myself were the animals I'd stolen to complete my task. I'm ashamed to say that I left them. I ran back home, locked the door, drew the curtains, and wept. He stayed in his home for almost a month, and when he emerged, a neighbor described him as, quote, a thin animal, dirty and hairy. If he were a dog, he'd be put down mercifully. And while Hatteras had only hidden himself away for a short period, he learned that things had changed. People in the village were missing. Adults and children alike were disappearing. People began to lock their doors and lock their windows, even stand guard, but it didn't matter. Each night, another person would go missing, then another. One night, six were taken from their beds. The others in the house with them were unaware until morning that they were empty and gone. But the windows were still closed and the doors were still locked. Hatteras felt a guilt that sat on his chest like a stubborn horse. While he couldn't bring himself to tell the others in the village what he'd done, he would put an end to the evil he'd helped inflict upon them. 
Hatteras slept all day, and in the evening he woke and stalked the shadows. He waited, watched, trying to catch a glimpse of whatever was taking his friends and neighbors. Night after night he kept watch, and night after night he saw nothing. Even the nights when someone was taken, he saw and heard nothing at all, until the mournful wails pouring from the homes they were taken from. Then one night, well, I'll let Hatteras tell his own story here. Quote, it was the time when the sun focused on other matters, and the night has grown bored with its role in the universe when I saw it. A few homes down from where I stood hiding within some bushes, a puff of smoke arose from the chimney. It was not the lazy smoke of a slow-burning fire, but the rounded excitement given off when a pile of brush is lit with lamp oil. When the smoke cleared, a shadow remained, and within that shadow, as if it were in a terrible womb, a boy of only about ten was curled and sleeping. I knew that shadow. It was what began of the woman who entered my shop. It was a darkness that moved like water, finding shapes to contort into with each moment, but the boy was held still. I leapt from my hiding place and screamed out into the night with an axe in my hand, unclear of what I intended to do next. Then the darkness above the home, the boy within it, just vanished. Of course, now I knew where they were going. Hatteras gathered his things and headed towards the deep woods in secret. Though he forgot exactly how the trail had gone, he easily, quote, found the sounds of screaming, of suffering. It should have been a warning to turn back, but I could not. When he arrived at the village, it was the opposite of what he'd seen last when he was there. Then, it looked abandoned, forgotten, and neglected, but that night when he arrived, it was alive with the flickering of fire. Each home's hearth burned, torches were lit along various pathways, and the shadows who lived there flickered between the nothing of endless darkness and the familiarity of human faces and forms. Hatteras recalls, quote, not knowing if these were spirits or ghosts who settled with one another to torment the living, or something else entirely, something far worse, far more sinister. My answer would come soon enough. Now he recalls moving in the shadow to the open window of one of the cottages, noting, quote, there was nothing to keep the cold out, no glass or curtains, but it did not dare to go in. Instead, the heat of the raging hearts echoed into the outside world so hot that I began to sweat the moment I peered inside. It was then I saw what I was paid to create. The iron I'd hammered and broke, the cages I'd shaped and molded, were holding adults and children alike prisoner inside them. In this home, one had just been locked in and was screaming. Screaming from the terror of its abduction, the horror of its attacker, but mostly the heat of the fire. In the other cages, I became sick to admit, were the dead. They were cooked, their juices dripping like fat from a roasted goose, and that too was being collected in large copper bowls below them. I'm ashamed to admit that the smell of it made my sour stomach sing. The stench of my fellow villagers was a delight of which I'd never experienced. If it was any other place or time, I would have sought out the source of such a tantalizing aroma. I cursed myself even now for my weakness and not being the master of my own senses. Hatteras kicked the door in, ran to the fireplace, and began to pull the white-hot iron trap he'd created from the wall. The skin of his hands hissed and sizzled and melted away. The stone of the wall gave and the iron cage swung forward, burning his face and neck. The boy inside continued to scream, blinded mad by fear, and the noise did not go unnoticed. 
Hatteras remembered, quote, the shadows, those devourers of light and flesh, came at once like a storm cloud blocking the sun and calling out in a voice that forced the air from my lungs. He pulled the iron mantle, the living boy and the cooked corpse in the cages, and dragged it through the woods. The creatures swirled themselves in a rage, knotting themselves together, but he did not look back. When he reached the village, he screamed and begged for everybody to go inside and hide, to shutter their windows and lock their doors. They saw a cloud of death behind him rising up over the trees like a tidal wave of twisting eels. He pulled the iron mantle into his own home and leaned it against his unlit heart before running to the window to close it, but it was too late. The shadows were at the wall of his house and looking in. He froze, sweat dripped down his face and soaked into his beard. He held his breath, not blinking, not thinking, just waiting for eternity to come knocking at the door to take his soul away to wherever it was that it would go next. In the torrent of the shadow, he saw the woman's face again. Her eyes still swirled with the wild motion of the darkness inside her, but there was a curiosity. She watched him as his chest heaved as bellows, following the pace of his frantic heart. He was leaning against the iron mantle, the cooked body caged beside him, its juices dripped, its life long gone. The liquid of it fell onto his arm and ran down to his hand, and dripped from his fingers. The woman, quote, seemed to be pleased by this. She looked at me satisfied, and I knew her intent. I felt her influence, and I could do nothing to stop it. As sick as it made me, as much as my hatred grew for myself with my inability to push back her suggestion, my hand rose to my mouth, and I licked it clean of the greasy liquid the corpse had covered it with. And I will burn in hell for this, but I found it delicious. He said the shadow disappeared all at once, leaving the village still and calm. He let the wounded living child free from its cage, and it ran off, presumably to find his parents. Hatteras was convinced that he was allowed to live because the darkness felt he had become its kin. So he spread the word, told all what had happened, omitting his tasting, of course, and from that year forward, all those in the village, and eventually a tradition that spread to the corners of all the world, would place these cheesecloth sacks, or large socks filled with roast, in front of the fire to cook. They thought the evil just beyond the borders of their home would see this and think the flesh cooking inside was human and leave them in peace. As the centuries wore on, the story of why faded and the tradition of now became to fill those socks with toys and treats. Though the song has changed, these are the origins of the stocking hung by the chimney with care to ward off the evil that's always just there. Did you enjoy this tale? Who? Me? Who are you talking to? No, the listener. What are you talking to them for? The story's done, they've gone on, haven't they? Well, maybe not. Maybe they'll listen to us little grivels for a bit. Mr. Oak ain't the only one with a story to share. I have things to say. What things? Like, maybe if they enjoyed themselves, they should subscribe or follow or leave a review. Don't be telling them what to do. I'm not. It's not polite ordering those poor folks to do things, especially since they ain't here for you. They came for Mr. Oak, didn't they? Well, how do you know they ain't come for us? Because they don't even know who we are. All I'm saying is it's good manners to subscribe or follow or leave a review, isn't it? Is this recording? Did you hit the button? I thought you hit the button. Oh, dear. 
Mr. Oak won't be happy. 